0: Shalom, You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 236. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we are delighted to um, be blessed by the recent uh, fall festivals that have just passed us by, and uh, or that we just completed and finished another cycle of going through all seven feasts with you. And we are thankful to know that even though um, we can't know for certain which day our Lord is going to return uh, in the coming future, but we can know by looking at the festivals that they are dress rehearsals of Messianic redemption, that they tell the life and story of our Messiah, Yeshua, and they give us the insight to look forward to his return to planet Earth and to um, enact the events that the festivals actually uh, line up with, that they parallel, that they actually um, portray, in in their meanings and in their purposes so thank you lord for giving us this roadmap and giving us an expectation that we can follow and that we can look forward to Thank you for the um, the study that we're going to undertake in both parts. We've got part one or segment one, which is an eschatological study, the study of end time events, and then we've got the part two, which is the apologetics, where we're dealing with trinitarian versus non-trinitarian issues. What an exciting um, time that we live in, where we can take the truth of God's word and share it with others around the world, even though there are people who disagree on certain points. We can um, we can at least come Together and serve our God and know that He is the one who's protecting us and raising us up um, despite the differences that we have on certain issues. So help us, Lord, to be um, uh, ever about our Father's business like Yeshua was. Help us to walk by the Spirit. Help us to forgive one another and to um, extend messianic sympathy towards one another. Be with us during this time. We'll be careful to give you praise and the glory. shame Yeshua. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, once again, for joining me for these live Internet studies. My name is Ariel Lyman V, And let's actually jump into our very first study that you can see on my screen right now. This is the Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events for segment one for our live Internet studies. We took a break for the live uh, classes. We took a break for the... uh, for the fall festivals and so we've been out of the out of the game for a while but now it's time to get back in and to um, get back into the topic as you can see on your screen we've got topic 8 which is highlighted in yellow and that's going to be the topic that we're going to be going through and we're going to finish this up tonight we, we kind of dead ended right in the middle of right around verse 15 in Matthew chapter 24 which is Yeshua's all of a discourse His, this um, lengthy discussion about end time events particularly the 70th week of Daniel and so before we jump into that let me just remind you of the scope of this type of study or of this particular um, uh, part of the study. So we'll get, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24, which has parallels in Mark chapter 13, as well as Luke chapter, um, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 21. I'm sure of Luke 21, but Luke 11, or so I'm drawing a blank on, but I think it's Mark 13, if I'm correct. So we've got these parallels. And uh, in fact, let me just jump over to a different slide and I'll make sure, yeah. Matthew, Mark 13, Luke 21, for sure but uh luke 11 i think has some luke 17 maybe yeah i think it is 17. but in matthew 24 which we're going to be spending most of the time here tonight As you can see on your screen, on the left side of the screen, if we've got of this particular chart, if you compare Matthew 24 and look at the details that Yeshua left his disciples, which now have been preserved and recorded for us here as believers in modern times, and we look at those details and we parallel them to what Yeshua gave to John in the book of Revelation, then what we find are that the details match each other line by line. And that's that way for a reason, right? It's no accident. So let's just read those parallels. Right down the middle, we've got the Antichrist and False Christ, which correspond in Matthew with the book of Revelation first seal. You Remember, there's this large scroll and it's got seven seals on the outside of the scroll. And the Lamb is the only one that John sees in heaven who's worthy to open those seals and the contents of the scroll cannot be, um, can't be accessed until all seven scroll seals on the outside are broken. And so these seals are going to represent these events that correspond to this 70th week, this last seven years of mankind's intense rebellious attempt to overthrow God and his Messiah and to establish man's own way. It's kind of the, the culmination of the rebellion of mankind, and it will be earmarked by the rise of antichrist and the persecution the tribulation and the rapture and the day of the Lord and then finally the return of Yeshua to establish his millennial kingdom at the end of the seventh week so there's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening in this last seven years and we don't know when the seven years will start but we do know that some of the events that should kick it off and then be associated with the 70 events will be very very compacted very concentrated so we've got this first seal that will um correspond to the antichrist who is that false messiah who's riding on the white horse of the four horses of the apocalypse right you've seen pictures of those before so that's the first seal the uh, first seal also corresponds, as we'll see in another chart, corresponds with the signing of the seven-year agreement that Antichrist is going to establish with Israel, either a signing or a strengthening of a covenant, depending on how you translate the original Hebrew word that Daniel used. So, in the parallel for the second seal from Revelation chapter six, we've got these wars, and that's one of also one of the um, four horsemen. I think it goes white horse, then red horse would be war, then black horse would be uh, the third seal in famine, and then the um, kind of green or pale horse would be the fourth seal, the martyrdom. I believe those are the colors, um, white, then red, then black, then green. Sometimes I get those mixed up, white, then black, then red, then green. I could get it wrong. I'll put a little graphic on the screen so you can see what I'm talking about, because I always forget. So, second seal's wars. And then in the uh, third seal parallel from Revelation 6, we've got the famine, right and then following right on the heels of that we got the fourth seal which is martyrdom which is the kicking off of the great tribulation there's another chart that i'll show you here in a moment so don't worry if you're not following along with this chart that you can see the fifth seal is um the kicking off of the result of the martyrdom which is the great tribulation as well and yet what we're going to see is that all of these seals will be introducing uh time well not really time periods but they're introducing events within the seventh week that are actually going to continue into the rest of the seventh week so it's not like the Antichrist is going to go away anywhere. The wars aren't going to stop they're just going to kind of keep ramping up the famine's not going to um, just kind of uh, show up for a little while and then disappear. I don't think that's the case but we're just talking about general signs that Yeshua calls the beginnings of birth pangs as we're moving further and further into this seven year time period. When we get to the sixth year, we've got these celestial disturbances You re- you remember from other um teachings that you probably heard on the internet or uh, read in books or whatnot about the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, and the stars appearing to fall from the sky. Of course, we're talking about some kind of maybe um, comet or meteorite, meteorite activity. It won't be probably the little, st- little stars, but could be, but likely not. But we're talking about cosmic disturbances that everyone on planet Earth will probably likely be witness to and then from that sixth seal which i believe is one of the signs of the end of the age and of the sign of yeshua's return then we've got the interlude of the raptured saints where yeshua comes back to rescue us from that tribulation time period that the wrath of satan we could call it that And that corresponds to Revelation chapter 7. And then we move right into the immediate outpouring of the day of the Lord's wrath, which is the seventh seal, which contains the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments which are contained within the seventh trumpet judgment so that's the slice of time that we're going to be looking at let's jump it to a different um, graphic so you can see this in a different way look at this particular timeline we've seen this before as well in my studies moving from uh, reading from left to right you can see that at the top of the upper left corner of your screen you've got antichrist making this covenant at the beginning of the seventh week remember that's this last seven years that's been allotted to Israel for the people of Israel to be prepared to meet their Messiah who's coming. And the uh, events necessary to prepare unbelieving Israel will unfortunately include a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of death. And so Antichrist makes this covenant, but they don't know it's Antichrist. Remember, they're making a covenant with death. That's what Isaiah calls it. And so it is this covenant that will give some measured amount of peace in the middle east and boy do we need that right now right you read the news about the current uh, war in israel right now with hamas and the west bank and there's just chaos and disaster and, and loss of life and and terror and it's it's so unfortunate for the loss of life on both sides even even if you claim to be pro-israel that doesn't mean you have to be uh anti-palestinian um i mean we pray for the peace of israel right that's what the psalmist left for us shalu shalom Yeshua a pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love Thee. I'll flash a graphic on the screen that shows you where I pulled that psalm from, and I think it's like, like Psalm one twenty-two verse six, something like that, off of memory. But we pray for Israel's peace, but we don't pray for the destruction of the Palestinian people. That's 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 not the righteous example that Yeshua left for us. So we um we pray for the situation in the Middle East, but Antichrist is going to make this covenant that all other world leaders seemingly have been unable to make a lasting agreement with all the peace accords, you know, the the, the recent, you know, the Davidic accords, the Abraham accords, or whatever, the, the ones that the presidents of the United States have tried to broker peace deals in the Middle East, and none of them seem to really last or stick, but Antichrist is going to make one stick, at least for seven years. Now, on the books, he might even show that it to be longer, you know, I, I imagine it probably will be, but at least the first seven years is kind of maybe the kickoff. So, that course responds with the first seal down at the bottom of the screen with antichrist and then from there you can read on your own the rest of the events down at the bottom you can see all the seals that match one through six and then when we get to the sixth seal (coughs) excuse me I'm sorry, let me back up. When we get to the fourth seal, you can see that right there in the middle of the seven years, we find this fourth seal neatly divides the 70th week into three and a half years on one side and three and a half years on the other side so that the midpoint at the top of the chart corresponds to the abomination of desolation. And that's what we're going to pick up our study tonight. We're reading in Matthew 24, starting in verse 15, where it's this very, very important event that was already prophesied by Daniel way, uh, you know, way back when, and it's now referenced again by our Lord Yeshua, and this kicks off the Great Tribulation. Uh, whether they'll be right simultaneously, I can't say exactly, but um, the intense wrath of Satan that's poured out against not just Israel, but ultimately against anyone who does not take his mark and worship his image, and take the number of his of his name tribulation awaits them this includes of course christians who are faithful to god and will reject the messiah and his false prophet And yet, the Great Tribulation is promised by both Yeshua in Matthew as well as by Yeshua in Revelation to be cut short by two back-to-back events, as I understand it. We've got the rapture, which is the coming of the Son of Man, date unknown. You can see on my chart there. But that also is followed right on the heels with the day of the Lord and the beginnings of the seventh seal, which will um, then kick off the seven trumpets, which will then kick, uh, kick off the seven bowls. And then when we get towards the end of the 70th week, we've got some other events that correspond to a 30-day and a 45 that Daniel prophesied about earlier, which um, lead us into Jesus' reign in Jerusalem beginning at the very end, which is the beginning of his um, millennial kingdom reign here on earth. Let's look at one more, uh, or actually two more charts, just real quick. Um, we've got the pre-wrath rapture that I hold to, which is also held to by um, Robert Ben Campen, and the book, The Sign, that I'm borrowing many of my notes from much of my my material from and you can see here just another way of looking at the 70th week the last seven years the, the three and a half years on one side of your chart the left side the great tribulation right there kind of in the middle after the midpoint and then the day of lord on the far right and god's wrath being poured out and you can see the raptures right there uh kind of in the, almost kind of halfway through the second three and a half year slice somewhere around that time that's what we call the pre-wrath rapture um, so let's begin to look at this time period and see if we can ascertain, uh, what we're going to mean to be prepared because as far as I can tell, we're going to go through the first three and a half years and go into the tribulation as believers awaiting the rapture and deliverance of our Lord, uh, from that. Uh, event, uh, or not from the event altogether, but after some time during the, as that event's uh, being um, unfolded. So let's turn to our notes. Uh, let's see, let's go right here. So we left off with verse 15 of chapter 24 in Matthew, and these are our Lord's words. He says, Therefore, and remember, he's speaking to the disciples, but the Words have been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit, and now we can read them today, so therefore they apply to us as well because our Lord hasn't returned yet and Jerusalem is still around, and in fact she um even though she doesn't have a temple, there will be there should be some structure that's rebuilt which will allow the Antichrist to go in and desecrate it. Some type of maybe tabernacle or portable um, structure that allows for sacrifices to take place. Also remember that Daniel already foretold that the the, um, Antichrist is going to put an end to those sacrifices. And um, that's three and a half years after he already allowed Israel to reinstate them. Now, we already know that when we look at the Temple Mount today, that there are two Muslim shrines or edifices or buildings that that sit on top of the temple mount that are really forbidding any Israeli or any Jewish person from going up there and conducting any type of religious activities or anything like that. I mean they don't want to kick off World War 3, right? We've already got the current war in Israel that could roll out into World War 3. I mean, left unchecked. We pray that it doesn't, but certainly if Israel tries to go up on the temple mount and and disturb um uh uh, Muslim activities going on up there, you know, try to su- suppose that they're going to do some type of sacrifices, that's a big no-no, right? That's not going to happen anytime unless the Antichrist, who could be a Muslim, right? Per Joel Richardson might be a Muslim, but certainly until the Antichrist makes it possible for Israel and their Muslim neighbors to have some kind of joint ceasefire agreement where they're not lobbing rockets at each other and, and, and at each other's throats, but some form of peace agreement that allows for the sacrifice to Uh, to begin again. So look at this verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolations, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Yeshua points us back to the Bible in the book of Daniel. And you've got to reference Daniel chapter nine. Um, Well, you can start in chapter eight if you want to, but or even in chapter seven, if you'd like, but don't forget to pay clear, careful attention to chapter 9 and then 10, 11, and 12 and just finish out the rest of the book. And notice how that there's this foreshadowing of the Antichrist seen in the person and man of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we looked at that in previous studies. So let's read some of the um, uh, notes that I put together um, some time ago. And um, they're very brief because at the time there wasn't, wasn't really a lot of time to um, elaborate. But now that I've got this live study I can read these short uh, comments and then provide some more commentary. Here's what I had to say a long time ago. Referencing the book of Daniel, Jesus hints at a future event involving the desecration of the holy place, which I might interject right now. As of yet, as of this recording in 2023 still doesn't exist. As far as we know, there's nothing there on the Temple Mount for the Antichrist to desecrate. But, if we were to take this prophecy literally and we're not discounting it like the preterists do, the hyper-preterists who say that all of these events took place in 70 AD or something like that. If you're taking the futurist position that I do where we believe that what Yeshua is referring to here is a future event that hasn't yet happened according to our time frame then we're talking about a desecration of an actual temple or at the very least some form of tabernacle structure that um, the Jewish people can place sacrifices on and I go on to say that this enigmatic reference has led to various interpretations but generally points to a climactic event in the end times and it's very significant the midpoint of the week because that's the turning point when I believe that supernaturally the Antichrist will be revealed and so um, I believe God himself is preventing the Antichrist from being known at this point even when he signs this peace agreement at the very beginning of the 70th week he won't be known as Antichrist at least not to the Jewish people otherwise they wouldn't be signing a peace agreement with the man going to turn on them three and a half years later right i mean hello so there must be a supernatural spiritual blindness on the part of we humans that's blocking us from fully understanding who the antichrist is although when we when we christians become aware Of the signing of the peace treaty, we'll probably be able to infer who the Antichrist is, but the world at large won't know. Remember, Israel is in in large part um, unbelieving. They're blinded. They're secular. They don't understand their Messiah. They don't understand their God. So, of course, they're going to make a covenant with the Antichrist, believing him to be a man of peace when he turns out to be a man of war. But the point I'm trying to make is that by the time we get to the midpoint of the week, the the, um, blinders are going to come off of Israel, because supernatural God's going to allow the Antichrist Christ to reveal himself and the protection that God has been giving Israel up to this point in time via either the Holy Spirit or the, um, print, the uh, Michael the prince uh, of Israel or the church or some other factor that's preventing uh, Satan from just attacking Israel uh, fully, that's going to be removed and and of course this was within god's plan but that's going to be removed to the extent that that god allows israel to suffer this intense tribulational period the time of jacob's jacob's trouble etc etc let's keep reading verse 16 yeshua says then those who are in judea must flee to the mountains now this time period where he says when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by daniel the prophet standing in the holy place let the reader understand when he when he says that that. And then he says in, in the very next verse, then let those who are in the in the in Judea flee to the mountains. The time period of the, the um abomination desolation corresponds exactly with the siege of Jerusalem and the surrounding of Jerusalem by Israel's enemies. So it's not just that there's gonna be a time of peace. And then suddenly the Antichrist marches into the temple and, and and desecrates it and defiles it. It's not quite like that. Rather, he's got at least two agendas going on simultaneously. He's got the siege and overtake of Jerusalem on his plans and on his mind. And at the same time, he's going to decide to desecrate the temple just like Antiochus of old did um, way back uh, 200 years before the first century. And the way we can know this for sure is, let me look at this second chart we've got the great tribulation here you can see this chart here i've got parallels from matthew 24 15 mark 13 14 and luke 21 20 and when you look at them you can see that they are all describing basically the same event but the language is slightly different in the yellow and or uh red the matthew and mark accounts the focus is on the temple and its desolation by antiochus epiphanes and then um, we're told in mark 13 then let those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains, which is um, verse 16 in Matthew 24. But notice in Luke 21 20, the record of our Lord says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near, the desolation of Jerusalem. And then if I were to continue reading through Luke 21 20, he tells his disciples, you know, "Get get out of Judea, et cetera, et cetera, just like he said in the Matthew and the Mark accounts. So this just shows that we're dealing with the same time frame but we've got kind of a two-pronged attack from the Antichrist we've got the attack on the temple itself and then we've got the attack on greater Jerusalem which uh, Yeshua warns the disciples to get up and get out so I say in my uh, commentary, just briefly, Jesus provides practical advice for the inhabitants of Judea, urging them to flee when they witness a sign of impending danger. And from this point, we can kind of move a bit rapidly. We are going to finish this tonight. So just stick with me through the entire study. It's only about an hour. It might be even just a little shorter than an hour. We're going to finish this part tonight, which represents part one of the first, kind of the first uh, 25 or 28 verses of Matthew 24. And then that's that'll poise us for... Now. Next week to begin part two of this look at Matthew 24 with the second half of the verses so let's continue in verse 17 Yeshua says whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house and um, I say in my um, brief commentary continuing the practical instructions Jesus underscores the urgency of the situation suggesting a swift escape without unnecessary detours and of course going to the fact that israel today has um uh has a lot of uh what would we say a lot of um things that would make it difficult to move about if we're on a holy day or on a Sabbath day, right, certain restrictions that are kind of built into the um, uh, social uh, structure of Jerusalem as a holy city, well, then we can begin to realize that when Yeshua says, don't dilly-dally, that it's going to be even increasingly more difficult uh, given the fact that Jerusalem is already, number one, split into two parts. We've got kind of east and west Jerusalem where one half is kind of occupied by Jews and the other half is kind of occupied by um, Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. So that alone is going to make traveling and fleeing uh, difficult. But as we're going to keep continue reading here, we're going to find that um, the the uh, absence or presence of a holy day is really going to complicate things. So let's keep going there. Yeshua says, whoever's in the field must not turn back and get his cloak. And uh, I go on to say that um, Um, this verse reinforces the imperative nature of immediate flight, cautioning against any hesitation. Now we begin to look at some things that might hinder getting up and getting out, right? Verse 19, but what are those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days? We can see, sense that the urgency of the matter is that whatever Antichrist is going to pour out on Jerusalem by way of a siege is going to be very, very sudden, very unexpected, very, uh, what we should we say, catch Israel off guard, similar to what happened just recently here with the um, war that's currently going on in Israel they were caught off guard their iron dome seemed to fail them when it came to this attack from Hamas well apparently Antichrist is probably going to already be occupying a part of Jerusalem where he's going to already be right there close enough that when he turns on Israel this time the iron dome he'll be right inside of it he'll be inside the walls as it were and so uh, his, um, his attack will be swift and so, even though Israel is going to do their best to keep being prepared, remember something. And I'm, it's not found right here, but we can find it in other prophecies, is that Israel, because of the peace treaty that she made with Antichrist incognito three and a half years earlier, she will largely be dwelling in peace and safety. Uh, the prophets of old describe it as the a land dwelling with unwalled villages, meaning there won't be this sense. Of of the iron dome needs to be turned on or switched on in in alert mode um, rather because of this seeming non uh, uh you know this uh, ceasefire agreement that's going on between israel and her surrounding neighbors there will be this, this this air of peace and safety when in fact we know there is no peace and safety in fact that's also echoed by the prophets peace peace when there is no peace all right let's keep going i go on to say that concerning this verse verse 19 jesus acknowledges the challenges faced by specific vulnerable groups during the impending tribulations and then as we keep going with that same theme jesus says but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a sabbath and we know this is going to be difficult for israel because of the dynamics of israel's shutting down certain activities on the sabbath day certain kinds of uh, uh, travel are restricted or uh, not accessible Um, religious Jews cease from traveling so that they don't violate a rule that's been established about um, how far you can travel on Sabbath etc etc and yet the Antichrist is not going to have any regard for that and um, he's not going to be honoring any type of Sabbath agreements remember he hates God he hates God's Messiah he hates God's people and he hates God's Torah so he's not going to be saying well I'm gonna cut you some slack on the Sabbath day it's not gonna happen Jesus advises prayer I say regarding the timing of their escape indicating concern for the practical hardships that could arise from winter or Sabbath restrictions let's keep going again there's not too much to this part. Most of it's really self-explanatory. If you read through Matthew 24 with an eye open for truth and a heart that's attuned and, and ears that are in tune to the spirit, well then our Lord's words are, are very, very relevant and very pertinent, very detailed. And we're going to see later, later on that he tells the disciples, I'm telling you these things so that you might know in advance. You know, far from the um, perspective that we're not supposed to know anything about the end times and that we're all supposed to be clueless and be in the dark because this day is going to overtake us like a thief in the night, and we don't know the day or the hour or things like that. You've heard all those sentiments about the end times and the second coming of Messiah, and how about there's so much unknown, but Yeshua kind of um, tempers that. Temper, temper, that he kind of balances out that perspective by giving us so many details about when certain things are going to happen. You know, like for instance, he uses the phrase that when you see this, and then there will be, and then after this there will be. So there's a, a a a definite kind of sequence that's unfolding before our eyes, and we need to be aware of these things. So he says in verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor un until now, nor ever will be. Now, stop and think about this for a moment. It, compared to the holocaust and the the sheer loss of life from the jewish perspective right the millions of jews who were sent to gas chambers and sent to their deaths yet yeshua says that this tribulation period is going to make every other tribulation that took place among the jewish people pale in comparison and so if you're a preterist whether hyper or full-blown or partial or whatnot a kind of what a preterism and you believe that what took place in seven 70 ad was a fulfillment of what yeshua was saying in verse 21 then that means from your perspective the holocaust didn't compare because the holocaust came later yet by sheer numbers i think the holocaust had more deaths and yet What Yeshua is saying is even more horrific. He's saying that when this time takes place, which if you're a futurist like I am saying, this still hasn't happened yet, then it'll be even worse. And so, boy, we're going to need prayer in that day. We're going to need the Lord's help to make it through. And we know that this will be um, Jerusalem-centric, right? Primarily, this tribulation will be centered in Jerusalem. But based on other passages that we have already been um, exposed to, we know that this tribulation is going to spill out like ripple effects, like waves from a from, the, from a stone thrown into water, and the and the waves ripple outward. Uh, you know, Jerusalem being the epicenter, this is going to ripple outwards to the rest of the world. And so eventually, Satan's um, intense hatred for the Jewish people that we read about. in Revelation chapter twenty, where he's where he's angry with the woman, the wrath of Satan that's being poured out like a flood is after is intended to destroy the woman who's israel but the passage in revelation chapter 12 also indicates that he will make war not just with the woman but with the rest of her offspring those who name the name of yeshua and keep the commandments of god this would immediately implicate not just messianic jews but also any christians living during that day so we know this is going to spill out into the rest of the world what do i have to say for just a short time uh for a short uh, verse here of my short comments jesus in introduces the concept of a great tribulation unparalleled in history. this epical event signifies an intensified phase of turmoil and this I believe is the time known as what we would we've been taught the great tribulation so by comparison, when we look at this chart here I'm working backwards we've got the um, the great tribulation there occurring after the midpoint of the week right in the middle of the chart but looking to the left of that you know, rewinding the clock, the beginnings of sorrows, which is the first three and a half years that Yeshua indicates, I do not hold that that is the Great Tribulation. That's just like it says, the beginnings of sorrows. We can see another chart here where the first three and a half years is um, earmarked by the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, the Antichrist making his covenant, the, the persecution and the apostasy, etc., etc. And then in the chart that we looked at at the, the very beginning, this would correspond with through the fourth third second and first seals and you can see the corresponding parallels there so the point i'm simply trying to make is that we it's not necessary to describe and um place the tribulation as covering the entire seven years as if it's there as if there's a seven-year tribulation and we're uh exempted as christians from that tribulation i don't believe that's necessary eventually i'm going to make a case for a pre-wrath rapture but now is not the time and in the pre-wrath rapture so i go back to this chart in the pre-wrath rapture this allows for christians to be a part of the great tribulation yet have the tribulation cut short by the rapture where we are rescued by our lord himself let's keep reading so speaking about the days that are going to be cut short by the return of the lord by the rapture itself in verse 22 yeshua says unless those days had been cut short no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, there are a a number of interpretations towards what Yeshua means by those days being cut short. Some Bible teachers have understood this to mean that he's gonna cut the seven years short. Instead of being a full three and a half and three and a half years, like Daniel talked about, Yeshua for the sake of the elect will cut the 70th week short somehow so that we don't have three and a half and three and a half years i don't subscribe to that perspective i believe that the immediate days that are cut short are those that were just mentioned in the previous verse those days of tribulation those are the days that are cut short and it's for the sake of immediately thus the elect of israel the elect there in jerusalem but since we're talking about a worldwide tribulation that's spilling out and affecting every christian around the world then i believe that the elect there can also play double duty by referring to those who name the name of Messiah and are alive during that day. Uh, We who are Christians are also part of the elect. But remember, from the biblical perspective, as far as I understand it, covenant membership in God's program exists on two levels. The first level is kind of what we might call an earthly, fleshly, temporal level, and it's primarily held by Israel, right? Ethnic Israel enjoys covenant membership with God at the earthly slash limited level, and it's signified by the fleshly covenant, the sign of the covenant, which is um, physical circumcision for males. However, there's also what we might call running parallel to that a spiritual um, covenant membership, which is only for those who have named the name of um, Yeshua our, as our Messiah. And so um, you can be a member of both covenants at the same time. That it's say if you're a believing Jew or you're a believing Gentile who um, has a physical circumcision in the flesh, which is not necessary for salvation or anything else, but the sign of the um, spiritual uh, covenant, of course, is circumcision of the heart. So even the signs themselves have parallels to one another, physical circumcision for, physical covenant membership spiritual heart circumcision for those who have um, spiritual covenant membership so why am I bringing this point up it's because when we're talking about the elect we see verses like this where it talks about the elect or the Saints that Daniel talks about that Antichrist is gonna wear out the Saints of the Most High for a certain time period we have to remember that in the natural those words the Saints or the Holy Ones or things like that is a reference to Israel And yet, in the spiritual sense, since we are all sons and daughters of Abraham, our father, our spiritual father, through our faith in Messiah Yeshua, right, go back and read Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 all over again, read them back to back, right, read Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 back to back, Um, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. So, um did i get that right romans 3 and galatians chapter 4 yeah read those two uh uh, side by side with one another and you'll see how abraham's our papa we who are not necessarily born of ethnic israel but we've already come to a faith in messiah we are the elect and we are the ones that yeshua says uh, those days of tribulation will be cut short for our sake and, of course, that makes sense, because Satan will be on this intense hatred, and, and left unchecked, he would really just not only wipe out the elect, but he would actually probably eventually go on to wipe out all life on earth, because he just hates God's creation. He, he hates God that much. All right, let's keep going. In my commentary, I have to say, highlighting God's intervention, Jesus explains that the duration of the tribulation will be curtailed for the sake of the elect, and I got the elect there in quotes, meaning Jewish people as well as Christians, the elect emphasizing divine providence in the midst of chaos. And again, I believe it's a cutting short of the tribulation, not a cutting short of the 70th week. Let's continue. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Remember, we're talking about not just this time period, um, uh, earmarked by many, many false Christs running here and there, like we already have in these days, but it's going to ramp up. But we also have the consummate Antichrist who's already going to be on the scene. So, not only will it be difficult to, to um, not be persuaded by uh, the Antichrist himself, but now we've got all these little Antichrist wannabes running around, everyone saying, I'm Jesus, I'm Jesus, I'm Christ, I'm I'm God incarnate, etc., etc., just like we got all the crazies going around today, all the nonsense. And yet, what's going to make it more difficult is not not just for those who are already watered down believers, but what's going to make it more difficult is that God has promised in the um, letters that Paul left to the Thessalonian church, which we're going to get to in time, God promised that he's going to send a strong delusion to those who reject the truth so that they will believe the lie that will be um, being uh, pushed out during these difficult days where there's lots of Christs, lots of false Christs and things like that. And notice also Yeshua within the perspective of saying, if someone says to you, behold here is the Christ, or there he is. Notice it's referring to a single person. Israel themselves also have a messianic expectation and so does islam so we've got a lot of religious contenders for this title of christ of messiah and yet yeshua is saying if you have someone telling you kind of in secret hey he's over there you know don't believe him um let's keep reading my comments and you'll see where i'm going with this jesus reiterates the theme of deception warning against misleading claims about his return because during this time uh, Christianity has already been teaching that when certain things start to happen on planet Earth, you need to look up because Jesus is coming back soon, right? The King is coming. Messiah is returning. So we've got all of this kind of broadcasting that's going to be increasing during this time. And yet now this will be ripe for those who aren't truly Part of God's family to pretend to be Christ, so that they can lead people away, lead them astray for own, for their own personal gain and their own personal, um, uh, I don't know, deceptive program or whatever agenda they're trying to uh, ramp up during that time for money, for power, for prestige, for whatever reason. Or they're they're just crazy and they they've got mental problems, right? And they need to uh, they need some therapy, and that's why they think that they're Jesus. Well. Our Lord says in verse 24, in continuing on this theme, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And remember, the elect includes Israel as well as Christians. And this makes it a little bit more challenging when we remember that Israel's perspective of who is Messiah doesn't match what we as Christians always per- perceive as who is Jesus' news is Messiah. Israel is rejecting Jesus already, national Israel rejects Jesus and so in their quest to look for a messiah who's coming, they're already going to be deceived by embracing Antichrist, the consummate false messiah. And yet Yeshua's warning that there will be more false Christs who are out to even deceive the elect within Christianity. So we've got to be very, very careful. You've got to know your Lord and Savior before that time comes. Don't wait until a day just and say to yourself, yeah, I'll get to know Jesus when the time comes, so I'll know I'm picking the right guy. It's not going to work that way, people. You've got to settle in your within yourself now before the hard time hits that you are going to have a genuine and lasting relationship with the true Jesus and so you can have the power of the Holy Spirit already seal you before that great uh, deception is poured out on unsuspecting humanity what do i say in my commentary the potency of deception will be magnified by the display of seemingly miraculous signs and wonders posing a challenge even to the faithful and you have to remember that these signs and wonders these miracles that these false Christs, these false prophets are going to be performing remember in the exodus story when moses threw down his rod and it turned into a serpent what happened the pharaoh's magicians did the same thing yeah the dark arts and the cultic magic that they possessed that they were part of Satan has the power to mimic signs and wonders now they are lying signs and wonders and they are meant to deceive people they're lying in the sense that they're they they do not indicate a genuine truthful prophet or a genuine truthful um, messianic figure instead they they indicate some form of miracle that's called that's designed to deceive people into thinking that who's ever performing the miracle or the sign is sent from God and is some sort of divine or, or a holy man. And yet in reality, he's, he's a demonic character. He's a, he's a bad guy. He's a, he's a charlatan. He's a, he's fooling you. And yet the signs and wonders seem to be indicated as being genuine, meaning they really are miraculous. It's not just what we would uh, classify today as, um, Uh, What we call a a sleight of of hand or a magician's trick, right? This isn't David Copperfield that we're talking about. We're talking about genuine power from the adversary that is able to uh, use supernatural events. To try to get people to believe the lies that he's going to be um, teaching in those days. Let's keep going. Yeshua says, "Behold, I've told you in advance." Remember, if he wanted to keep us completely in the dark as his followers, when the disciples asked a question very earlier on in Matthew chapter 24, and they said, "Lord, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?" Right, and I believe it's chapter uh, chapter 24, verse three or four, somewhere very early on. If Jesus wanted to keep us completely in the dark, he would have just said, hey guys, guess what? You don't need to really know about what's going to happen. You don't need to know about any of it. Don't worry. Me and me and me and pops, we got it all under control. We're going to handle everything. And when when everything's when it's time for everything to, to, to um go down, we're just going to take care of business. So you guys just sit back, relax, trust in us. We got it covered. We got your back. All right? Is that what Jesus said? Nope. That's not what he said. He gave them all these details, which have now been recorded for us. So we've got all these details. And then he goes on to say, "Behold, I've told you in advance." Right? Isn't that comforting? He's giving us the details in advance so that we can be prepared all right Let's keep reading. Jesus underscores the importance of, the war of his warning, ensuring that his disciples are prepared for these eventualities. And this is all made all the more pertinent when we realize that in 70 AD, in um, in agreement with what part of prayerism teaches, a lot of what Jesus said took place in partial fulfillment, and therefore the disciples likely went through those events and had to have those words of details from their master so that they could be prepared prepared for that time period. And indeed that's what took place in 70 AD as the temple was destroyed and then as the wars ramped up during uh, going into the 130s when Jerusalem was also uh, taken and um, Jewish people were kicked out under pains of death told not to return and Jerusalem was plowed under and renamed Alia Capitolina by the um, reigning uh, Roman armies at that time. So Jesus' warning is all the more pertinent at least for those who lived in 70 AD they needed those details. And now as we, through the eyes of the futurist perspective, anticipate that we're going to go through some things again. Those who are living in Jerusalem, when these things take place, are going to need these details. But sadly many in israel i fear are not reading these words from the book of matthew mark and luke why because the rabbis and their version of judaism have poisoned the minds of those religious jews to reject the new testament and the apostolic scriptures and therefore they're not reading the words of our master yeshua and they will be largely unprepared and what about the rest of the israelis well they're secular and they don't care anyway all right let's keep reading verse 20 when i say they don't care I, i'm not saying they don't care about their life i'm saying they don't care about the bible as a whole therefore they don't care about god right they're secular they just want to live their lives and have fun and do whatever they want to do okay verse 26 we're almost done here So if they say to you, Jesus says, behold, he's in the wilderness. Do not go out or behold, he's in their inner rooms. Do not believe them. Notice that I say in my commentary, Jesus anticipates uh, the various false claims about his own return, advising discernment and skepticism. And this is interesting as we're going to be moving into him now giving them what to look for in um, connection with his return. He first tells them that there's going to be an indication that my return is not going to be secretive right did you read the verses there if they say to you behold he's in the wilderness like yet i got like you gotta go out to some secret cave and find him or behold he's in the inner rooms right like he's hiding he's in this closet there's this there's there's this sense of that jesus secretly came back and snatched us all away that's what verse 26 is kind of Uh, Imply, and Yeshua saying no that's not the way I'm gonna return so how is he going to return look at this verse 27 Yeshua says for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west so will the coming of the Son of Man be now this is an analogy he's gonna give us a second one here in a moment how is it when there's a dark cloudy day a stormy day and the lightning flashes in a certain region where the storm is Well, everyone in that region sees the lightning flash. The lightning is not hidden and secretive like only those people in a certain local area can see it. Indeed, when you look at pictures from space, lightning covers a wide area uh, when it flashes. So the lightning lights up the entire sky. And so Yeshua is indicating that his return is going to be basically seen by everyone. And as I say using a vivid metaphor jesus portrays the suddenness and universality of his return which is impossible to miss and so on the one hand we've got this idea that he's returning like a thief in the night and that no man knows the day or the hour so we've got that perspective on his return but largely we have to remember that that's for people who don't um claim the name of the name of Yeshua are not even looking for a a messiah to return they're not being they're not waiting right they're 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 not keeping their eyes open and looking to the sky for any type of redemption but we who are believers Paul says in the books of Thessalonians we're not in the dark we're not children of the darkness and therefore for us we will be expecting our Lord's return but not only that the rapture will not be a secret event the, vet, the metaphors that Yeshua is giving us indicates that the rapture will be a blinding light-filled event that that everyone will witness around the world, and yet only those who are genuine believers will be snatched away uh, during that time period. Let's keep reading. We're almost done here. I think we can finish within the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Verse 28, he gives a second part of this analogy. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. What is this analogy referring to? The final verse of this section leaves us with a cryptic image suggesting that the climactic events surrounding christ's return will be unmistakable drawing the attention of all so did you catch the uh the, the the um the picture there when we're talking about a dead body or or a dead animal out in the in the desert then even if you're far away if you can see the vultures which are above in the air they're circling then from a distance you can identify that there's a dead body below because the horde of vultures are gathering in that area he's simply saying that similar to that it's not that this is going to be that the dead body or the 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 event that's taking place is not going to be known rather the um the, uh, the the presence of the birds going or circling around the, the body is something that people can see from far away. And so he's simply trying to say, look, the event's not going to be hidden. Everyone will see it because of the blinding light. And this is all the more highlighted and emphasized, as we're going to turn to this next week, when we realize that one of the signs that... Is um, that occurs or is included um, with the return of, our, of Yeshua is the turning out of the cosmic lights, the dimming of the sun and the moon and the stars, everything going dark, and then we've got this brilliant flash of light as Yeshua splits the eastern sky and rescues those who are genuinely His followers. So let's um, conclude our study tonight with this final paragraph. We'll be done here in the next three minutes. This is my conclusion to part one and these are the words that i um had to uh say uh, during those time during that time matthew 24 1-28 presents a complex tapestry of eschatological themes prophetic warnings and practical guidance for the believers throughout these verses Jesus paints a detailed portrait of the tumultuous times preceding his return highlighting I said the um, the prevalence of deception persecution and tribulation right are you listening up? amidst this he our lord emphasizes the significance of endurance vigilance and discernment i go on to say that ultimately these teachings serve not only as a roadmap for understanding the future but and in closing i say it also is as acts as an encouragement for believers to stand firm in faith despite the challenges that lie ahead and so we have to remember as i'm closing with this this time period that we're talking about, that, you, that we're looking at right now with the, the beginning of the midpoint and going forward, is going to be marked by intense persecution and and um, uh, martyrdom for Christians and, and faithful Jews and those who will say no to the Antichrist and his regime. And yet, for those of us who are believers, we need to stand firm. We need to make up our mind that we're going to stand with God and that we're not going to give in to the persecution, even if it means having our lives taken from us so um yes we're gonna pray that we'll have protection and yes god's going to protect us uh, to a measure right there will be some protection some of us won't lose our lives some of us will be caught up alive and meet the lord in the air and yet there are a number of people that are already prophesied that are going to lose their life and so we've just got to be prepared for that time so may the lord strengthen us to be prepared to face those very evil days when they befall us amen amen that'll do it for this uh particular um part in this um study and that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a at Congregation, Kei Nevada Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online. And you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice how to update the uh, site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay just a brief important uh, details if you'd like to join us for our live studies be sure to get access to skype somehow if you're on my website right now um Uh, during the live study and you click on that blue skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website, where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there, and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. My name is and Lyman Hanavi. We're jumping back into our uh, weekly studies here. We took a break for the fall festivals, and I pray that you are blessed and refreshed. Uh, from those uh, uh, events, from those um, festivities, and from the meeting times that you were able to enjoy with your local congregations or your churches, or even if you just had something going on in your own home, I pray that um, the time was a blessing for you. Let's jump back into our look at Biblical Unitarian's Rejection of Trinity. And so we've just finished, really, Psalm um. Psalm 18, I think of Psalm 110, uh, where we were looking at uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we took a very long time to work through that particular passage, partly because of the preeminence that that verse enjoys in the New Testament, but also partly because I'm just long-winded. I mean, that's that's the matter of fact of it. But now we're ready to turn to a new passage that I hope doesn't take as long. I don't think it'll take as long. But we'll see, right? I don't have any plans on going that long with it. But we're turning now to Proverbs 8.23, which uh, Biblical Unitarian uh, quotes the NIV version of Bible reading as, I, and in brackets we have wisdom, was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. So we're going to read Biblical Unitarian's explanation Uh, which is extremely short and then we're going to turn right into reading the um, proverb itself it's a short chapter proverbs chapter eight not too many verses we can read the entire chapter but then we're going to center most of our efforts on the verses that biblical unitarian themselves have highlighted which are um verse uh 23 and uh, 22 and 23 basically So as we look at um, this uh, proverb here, as we're going to turn to it here in a moment, let's first read uh, BiblicalUnitarian.com's explanation. Remember, they're a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. BiblicalUnitarian.com is on the offensive to get you the christian to believe that god is not tripart he is instead a not a triad but he's a monad god exists as one and yet from their perspective one equals one person so he's numerically one to use the kind of an analytic uh uh, um analytic uh, way of speaking like dr dale tuggy would say he's numerically one his identity is such that god and the father are numerically the same person There's only one of them. We Trinitarians recognize that there is one God. Yes, we're monotheistic, and yet we're not fiercely and strictly hyper-monotheistic like Biblical Unitarian or um, other non-Trinitarian outfits to include one as Pentecostals or um, um, Muslims or even Rabbinic Jews. So let's read Biblical Unitarian's explanation about um, this particular verse. They say it this way. Occasionally, a Trinitarian will use this verse to try to support the Trinity and the pre-existence of Christ by saying that wisdom was appointed from eternity. Christ is the wisdom of God, per 1 Corinthians 1.24, and therefore, Christ was from eternity. Remember, Biblical Unitarian does not embrace a divine Messiah at least from the perspective of a pre-existent divine messiah if they do use the word deity or divinity it's in a very limited low christology type of aspect where jesus is the exalted son of god he's the unique son of god in the sense that all of humanity has been now commanded at least christians are walking in this role but all of command all of humanity is commanded to him to worship him as lord and the lord there is in a limited Sense of the um, savior and the um, the savior of humanity and the, um, uh, the 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 one who is in charge of God's program, but he is just an agent of God. He is the preeminent servant. of Uh, quintessential agent of God uh, that was foreshadowed by the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament but nevertheless he's just a human he was born in the first century he lived he died he was exalted to the right hand of the Father and he lives forevermore to make intercession for us yes he is our Lord and Savior yes he died for our sins yes and he lived the sinless life yes but all of those things are because God, his Father, empowered him to do certain things, but he is not God in, in flesh. He, there was no incarnation, and he certainly didn't precede his own existence um, uh, in eternity past or wasn't created uh, at the beginning of creation, like the um, Aryan outfit of Jehovah's Witnesses say. So, Biblical Unitarian says, basically, Jesus cannot be this wisdom that is referred to in the book of Proverbs. But, so who is wisdom, or who, or what is wisdom according to their perspective? Let's keep reading. They go on to say that this position, that, that Jesus is wisdom, the Trinitarian, one of the Trinitarian positions, we're going to find out that there is more than one Trinitarian position about wisdom here, but this position has not found strong support even among trinitarians and for good reason they go on to say that this wisdom in proverbs was quote unquote appointed literally set up by god and is therefore subordinate to god right remember um biblical unitarians are really modern day um socinians and so um socinians embrace the idea that there is one monad named god and therefore, he's not tripersonal. He's tried. He's not tripart. There's not one uh, God broken up into three persons like we Trinitarians believe. Um, so, Sanianism is a first-century heresy that was denounced by denounced as heretical by the church fathers, right? The early church creeds that uh, uh, state that God is Trinity, that he's one, yet three, yet one, one substance, um, you know, one um, divine substance that is nevertheless shared across the three divine persons who are all, equally god in subsistence and yet are separate in personhood so those are the kind of three what we might call pillars of trinity trinitarian belief we believe in one god number one we believe that there are three persons number two who are all equally god and yet number three we believe those three persons are all Uh, unique they're separate they're distinct from one another in that aspect so biblical unitarian falls under the camp of heresy heresy or heretical beliefs uh they are not the same and i I need to make this distinction because some people lump them together and i have in the past almost suggested that in some of my my commentaries. I wasn't very clear and articulated this matter. But Biblical Unitarian differs from, say, the garden variety of non-Trinitarian Jehovah Witness Arianism in the sense that Arianism at least embraces a pre-incarnate Jesus, who was created before the creation of the world. So, in the beginning, there was God who was uncreated. This is according to Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arianism. There's this uncreated God who then creates Created this son named Jesus or the Word, right? They created this word at the beginning, so he's the first thing that God created, and then Jesus created everything else. Thus, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arianism, with this wisdom who's being that we're going to be reading about in the book of Proverbs matches Jesus because he is the first thing that God created, as we're going to be reading about in the language that seems to be suggested by the writer to the book of Proverbs. By contrast, the biblical Unitarian model says, no, Jesus was not created in the beginning by God. Therefore, he's not lady wisdom. He didn't precede his first century birth by his mother, Miriam. He came into the world then. In the beginning, what existed was and we'll talk about it now okay so that's their perspective so don't get don't confuse socinianism which is the biblical unitarian model what what they kind of model their theology after don't confuse socinianism with arianism socinianism no there's no pre-existing messiah there's god and then there's Jesus, the human Messiah, or to name, to use the label of one of my um, popular YouTube viewers, and someone who wanted to debate with me, but I I, I don't have time to and the resource to debate, uh, opportunity to debate with him. But he goes by the handle the Human Jesus. I think that's even the name of his blog or website, thehumanjesus.org, thehumanjesus.com, something like that. But Biblical Unitarian embraces a human Jesus. So to them, Jesus is human. He's the human Jesus. But by comparison... Arianism slash Jehovah's Witnesses, modern day Arians, um, biblical Unitarian, they're modern day Socinians. So Arianism embraces a divine Messiah, but they define divinity. They define divinity as in a limited scope. Jesus is not capital G O D. He's a le- lesser lowercase G O D. Right? Uh, I e their own version of the Bible. Um, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was a lowercase G O D. All right. So yeah, he's God to them, but he's a lowercase God. All right, so Biblical Unitarian, the Socinian version, Jesus is not deity. Carefully reading the verse and its context shows that wisdom was quote unquote brought forth as the first of his works, verse uh, 22. They go on to say that if this wisdom were Christ, then Christ would be the first creation of God, which is an Arian belief. notice they're letting you know They're distancing themselves from Arianism and from, therefore, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is an Arian belief and heretical to Orthodox Trinitarians. So this is kind of interesting. Biblical Unitarian points their finger at Jehovah's Witnesses and Arianism and says, that's heresy, that's heretical, that Jesus was pre-existent. They reject that. We Trinitarians, we biblical Unitarians, I'm sorry, we biblical Trinitarians, we Orthodox Biblical Trinitarians, those of us who embrace Jesus as fully God, fully divine, we also point our fingers at the area, the modern Arianism uh, beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses and we say, yeah, that is, that's heretical. But at the same time, we point our fingers at Biblical Unitarian, which are modern day Socinians, and we say, oh, but you guys are heretical too. At least your belief system is. Right, uh, as, if, as if Biblical Unitarian trying to seek some support from us for that reason. Nevertheless, they go on to say, Therefore, <clears throat> many of the church fathers rejected this verse as supportive of the Trinity, among them such heavyweights as um, Athanasius, Basil, Gregory, Epiphanius, Epipha- Epiphanius and Cyril. Uh, C- Cyril. So they're going to try and draw support, and they're going to try and Almost create a red herring by obfuscating the issue or creating a smoke screen, a little bit of um, diversion tactic to to use um, or deflection to use a, a kind of classical um, uh, logic terminology when you're having debates. They're going to say, "Hey, look, these church fathers didn't embrace um, Arianism, and therefore it's it's likely then." They're going to kind of draw a semi-conclusion that this means that Unitarianism must be presumed from a church father perspective. And therefore, since it's since the church fathers embraced Unitarianism, then why don't you modern day Trinitarians do as well? Well, they go on to talk about how that we, as biblical Unitarians, we reject uh, Arianism we reject this pre uh, this this pre-incarnate Jesus who is um, equal with wisdom in proverbs we reject it also but for different reasons taking a concept and speaking of it as if it were a person is the figure of speech known as personification so now they're going to reveal what their perspective is let them define it all right here's what they say personification often makes it easier to relate to a concept or idea because as humans we are familiar with relating to other humans. They go on to say, and I'll just keep reading, I'm not going to stop here since theirs is so short, personification was common among Jews and the wisdom of God is personified in the book of Proverbs. They continue, Christ is considered the wisdom of God in Corinthians not because I add from Paul's perspective and a Trinitarian perspective that we say not because that he truly is to be identified as wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Like we, like some Trinitarians would say, but not all rather, according to biblical Christ is considered the wisdom of God in Corinthians. Why? Because of what God accomplishes through him, not that Jesus actually is wisdom personified and look at that that's the end of their explanation right so very short to the point uh this uh, verse on proverbs 8 verse 23. okay so now having said that let's turn and actually read the uh the entire uh proverb here of chapter eight as i scroll down into the screen you can see that the entire proverb is only 36 verses long and i'm only going to read the english on the left side of the screen i'm not going to read the hebrew at least not for the entire proverb when we get down to verse 22 i believe and 23 and we start reading my own commentary we will in fact draw in the hebrew and eventually we're going to draw in some septuagint greek as we look to it for um clarity on this particular issue is jesus the the proverbs uh the the um, lady wisdom spoken in the book of proverbs So let's begin to entertain this discussion. Okay, so let's turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Let me blow this up on your screen and uh, read each verse. And that way we can at least get the context of what the writer is dealing with. Starting at verse 1. just What I want you to do as you're listening, don't draw your conclusion of who this person in wisdom is. But but I want you to be aware of the language that the proverb is using that will eventually be... um, kind of paralleled or echoed by other writers in the Bible to include the New Testament writers like Paul, where we're going to see language that describes this wisdom figure in this book that is parallel to not only God himself, right? Actions that the father performs, but also eventually uh, language that Yeshua is going, that Paul's going to go on to, um, um, give or equate with Jesus or relegate or, 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 refer to Jesus later on in Paul's own writings. So, uh, look for some of that language. Let's start in verse one. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift her voice? And let me pause right away and show you at least one part in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, um, the very second word in the, in the proverb is, uh, ha is um uh, chuchma, uh which is four hebrew letters and i'm highlighting it here oh let me just do it like that there we go um if i hover over it a little morphology pops up pops up that shows me the um transliteration which is transliterated as ch o m a h but pronounced as Hokma by some people, but chokmah by others. I go with the chokmah, with the guttural sound there. But anyway, the um, definition is the word wisdom, and it's a noun in the feminine singular. So it's Strong's number 2451 feminine singular. I'll go ahead and click on it for you. I didn't have this opened up earlier, but so that you can see this. Saw so, uh, Strong's 2451, chokma looks like chokma if you can't pronounce the gutturals, but it's a noun in the feminine. Now why am I highlighting that? Feminine. Translated by the NSB as skill or wisdom or wisely or wits, but the BDB talks about how this is a feminine noun um which uh, points to either skill in war or wisdom in administration or shrewdness in wisdom prudence in religious affairs wisdom in ethical and religious matters etc uh, etc et so the definitions go on to give some nuances to this particular word but the one I'm highlighting is that it's feminine and why am I highlighting that well number one because we're talking about a grammatical feature we're not, ta- we're not saying that wisdom is a female we're simply talking about that the Hebrew word is a feminine word so when we find the pronouns later on in the verse when we go back over to the English does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her Voice. Notice the pronoun her. Well, then we're talking about the translator inserting the word her because of the chokhmah being a feminine word in the Hebrew. But this doesn't mean it has to be translated her. We could have easily just translated as does not wisdom call and understanding lift up its voice and we don't have to use the feminine there. So I don't want you to get confused by the feminine grammar or the feminine quality of the words, masculine feminine words in Hebrew, other languages have them. It's not the same as saying that wisdom is a she any more than and here's the proof than saying that the spirit mentioned all throughout the, the Old Testament is is a she either because the word spirit ruach is also feminine. But if we translated everywhere where the spirit shows up in passages hyper-literally with a pronoun of, of uh, her or she, then the very first and second verse of Genesis, we would have to read it as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, in the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth because Elohim is, is masculine. But then the very second word goes, and the earth was unformed and void and darkness covered was over the surface of deep and the spirit of God, you ready for this? She hovered over the surface of the waters. Why would I say she? Because the word is a ruach in that verse, the second verse, and ruach is feminine, and so it doesn't mean that the f- that the spirit is a female. It just means that the word is feminine, but we don't translate it as she hovered over. So that's what I'm trying to say. So that being said, it's not too difficult then for some trinitarians to say, well, yeah, wisdom is Yeshua because wisdom, although it's referred to as Lady Wisdom because of the feminine word Hochma. That doesn't mean that that wisdom is a female. It just means it could be also. Just spoken of as an it, uh, and therefore, when we say that Jesus is wisdom personified, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Well, obviously, Jesus is a male. All right. Just wanted to set you guys up for that understanding. With that being said, as we begin to read through the rest of this proverb, we'll begin to find these feminine language mentioned over and over again. Look at verse two. On top of the high Beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Notice the feminine words being used by the uh, book, the writer to the book of uh, Proverbs here, which we believe to be Solomon. I guess. Besides the gates, num- verse number three, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the door doors, she cries out. Right. I say this again about the he and the she, because I've heard some pastors say or some non Trinitarian leaning pastors or some Trinitarians who reject the idea that or some Christians who reject the idea that that. that lady wisdom in Proverbs is Jesus they say well see right away we know this can't be Jesus why because Proverbs is a woman and Jesus is a man and that's proof that Proverbs is not speaking about Jesus I even heard one um, Unitarian leaning teacher um, uh, go in this direction um, say that this could not be Jesus and the proof is because the book of Proverbs describes wisdom as a lady It's lady wisdom, and therefore it can't be Jesus because Jesus isn't a female. No, that's a weak argument because the writer isn't saying that Wait, wisdom is a lady, like the translations are, that we're reading here. Is simply saying that the word "hokhma," recognizing that that chokmah is a feminine word, and therefore, um, whoever translated the, the passage oftentimes just simply uses uh, the metaphor, since it's a kind of a um, personification or picture um, of a female. And we'll find out later, a little later on why. If you were to read the rest of the proverb, Proverbs, you'll see that um, there's a reason why uh, Solomon uses a female. Besides the gates at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the door, she cries out. I'll just tell you, since some of, her, some of you are not going to know. It's that also in the book of Proverbs, we have the um, wicked woman, the um, adulterous woman. Woman, the harlot, the prostitute, that the uh writer to the book of proverbs, which is uh, Solomon, warns believers away from, and she's personified as this evil. Woman, this uh, harlot that you are to avoid, and then later on in Proverbs, we already know that the prosperous woman is persona, is uh, spoken of as well. the the um the the famous uh, woman in the book of Proverbs, who is the uh, one who works day and night and and is a blessing to her house, right? The one that uh, godly women the world over want to model their lifestyle after. So, women figure prominently in the book of Proverbs as either um, persona persona. Modifications of an idea, or they are actually true women, but... Um and it's no, dip, no different here with this particular uh, personification of wisdom as a woman. All right. So, in other words, the warning is for men. Is, is that's why the woman is kind of used uh, in, in, that, in that kind of metaphor. Moving on to verse 4. To you, O men, I call. That's, again, why the personification of the woman there. To you, O men, I call in my voice is to the sons of men. Like, again, the adulterous woman, the harlot woman, um, would also call out to men to try to entice them to... Um, Draw them into that um, adulterous relationship, that um, promiscuous relationship, um, uh, that forbidden relationship from God's perspective. The one that the uh, uh, the writer to the book of Proverbs is warning uh, his sons away from that heartless woman. Well, in the same way, he's saying that this righteous woman, this, uh, and we're going to later on see that he even ascribes righteousness to her. Um, this woman is someone that you don't want to run away from. You want to do the opposite. You want to run into you want to embrace her and embrace her ways verse 5 oh naive ones understand prudence and oh fools understand wisdom as we're going to see as the proverb uh, bears out this particular chapter this woman not only instructs men to follow after her ways but she even identifies herself as the savior of humanity, which really gives us um, uh, an indicator that this is referring to, uh, to be equated with Jesus. Later on in the in the psalm in the uh, proverb, I I don't want to keep saying psalm, but proverb, verse six. Listen for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. Now we start using the language that is reminiscent of God Himself speaking, um, as if God is speaking, and wisdom is just coming out of His mouth. Verse seven. For my mouth will utter truth. Well, who speaks? Who utters truth? If not God Himself, Jesus also uses these types of this type of language, these types of examples. I. I I am the way the truth and the life right the disciples say lord where else will we go who else has the words of life who else has the way of truth that comes from his mouth wisdom says i will utter truth and wickedness is an abomination to my lips verse 8 all the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness Who can say that except God himself or the Messiah? There is nothing crooked or perverted in them, right? All my uh, uh, utterances, there's nothing perverted or uh, crooked in them. Verse nine, they are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Verse 10, take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. Verse 11, for wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable all desirable things cannot compare with her uh, verse 12 i wisdom dwell with prudence and i find knowledge and discretion let's keep going uh, the fear of the lord is to hate evil pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth i hate notice wisdom speaking says the fear of the lord which gives us a kind of an indicator that wisdom is a distinct Person or property or quality or attribute from the Lord God Himself, which is written in all caps in the English version here, which indicates from the Hebrew. If I were to scroll over there, that this is um, yod Hey Vav Hey. Right. Whenever you see the all caps L O R D, that means it's God yod Hey Vav Hey. But notice that. Wisdom speaks of God as if He is, as if God, the Father, right, God is separate and distinct from wisdom herself. So, this is also in um, agreement with Trinitarian beliefs that Jesus is one with God in essence, but separate and distinct from God in person. Jesus has his own identity. So it, it's it's fine for us to say that Jesus can refer to God as his father or as his God or as his Lord, right? No problem. No problem because uh, God the father is a separate person from God the son, just like wisdom would be separate from the Lord. So let's keep reading. Wisdom says in verse 14, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding power is mine, but notice the sort of overlapping language that wisdom uses when she's describing herself that mimics what God describes in other parts of the Bible, right? God keeps his own counsel, uh, wisdom and, and sound understanding power. These are things that God claims exclusivity to, right? Um, Jesus is praised in heaven, the book of revelation as the lamb who is to receive glory and power and, 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 um, and praise from everything in heaven and everything on earth. But, For wisdom to claim that power is mine must mean that wisdom is claiming some form of divinity because it is an all-encompassing wisdom and understanding and power that's in view here. Wisdom is saying that I am in the category of those who are in absolute power. Well, when we talk about beings in heaven who have absolute power, there's only one. There's God. Everything else is underneath God in terms of Power and having positions of power. Everything else is subservient to God, but not God in the form of wisdom, i.e. Lady Wisdom here in this verse, and not the Lamb, certainly in the book of Revelation. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, By me, wisdom says, kings reign and rulers decree justice. Those are, again, claims that God has made elsewhere in his words about um, establishing kings and tearing down kings and and, um, putting people in power and removing people from power verse 16 by me princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly again same theme there that he wisdom she wisdom uh, enjoys a privilege that otherwise is exclusive to God verse 17 I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me sounds like of words that Yeshua says right um, uh, behold I stand at the door and knock he who opens the door will come into me and sup with me and I with him he with me I will sup with him and he with me that's in the found in the book of Revelation we who seek after Messiah find Him, he can be found because we seek after him. He's made himself available for those who seek after him, and he urges us to seek after him. So, again, same words that are spoken of not just by God but by Yeshua. Verse 18 riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. Verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. And now we're going to start moving into this idea of. Wisdom dwelling with God and being with God at the at the beginning, uh, when God was creating the universe. So watch these words now, but just be careful. We're moving into, into verse twenty. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. Verse twenty-one. To endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Verse twenty-two. Ready for it? The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before his works of old. The Lord possessed me. We're going to parse this and and um, closely examine uh, the, the, the Hebrew and the Greek later on. But for now, just... Take notice of verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before works of old. And then verse 23, which is similar, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. So, just like biblicalunitarian.com highlighted in their own version, their own commentary, there's something very peculiar about these two verses that gives not just Trinitarians, but Arians and and some pause to try and understand and contemplate who is this figure wisdom because of the terminology of everlasting and the Lord possessing me at the beginning of his way but notice the language goes on I'll keep reading verse 24 when there were no depths I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water. This is obviously creation language, uh particularly the um beginning of creation, right? It's the beginning when God was creating all of these things. Verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. This language really, really comports well with the Arian position uh, held by Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was this first creature that God whipped up, who was then used as the agent of creation. Right? Especially verse 25 there, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Right? I was created. I was fashioned. I was fabricated by God, is what the um, the Arians would say, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Verse 26, while he had not yet made the earth in the fields, nor the first dust of the world. Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he ascribed a circle in the face of the deep. Verse 28, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed. Verse 29, when he set forth the sea, its boundaries, so that the water would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. So clearly the One who wrote Proverbs, which, again, we say is Solomon, is describing, on the one hand, an attribute of God, a quality of God, Um, you know, for those strict monotheists who don't want to use the word they don't want to use the P word, person they would at least would say that this is a kind of an emanation of god to borrow kind of a rabbinic term um even an esoteric kind of um lurianic kabbalistic term an emanation right god has these 10 emanations i'll flash a little graphic on the screen that shows these 10 emanations um that supposedly um proceed forth from God to describe qualities or attributes of God in, in equaling ten. And one of them, one of the highest ones, is chokhmah, wisdom you can see it on the screen for those of you are in post-production and so what's the point is that rabbinic judaism or ancient judaism biblical judaism of the um tanakh period they did not embrace a triune god a god who was of three persons instead they were strict monotheists and so for them wisdom simply represented one of the other ten um attributes of god that was personified in the book of proverbs so let's keep reading verse 30 then i was beside him notice the language the prepositions that are showing up beside him indicate that this is not just um god uh, sitting in his own space within his own mind right being alone within his own mind or space Uh, by himself rather there's this attribute or quality of god that the writer can describe is beside god as a master workman and i was daily his delight rejoicing always before him so this echoes the language of or precedes really the language of john in john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was where with god beside god or closely in relationship to god literally in the greek would be prost on down face to face with god and so it's not uh difficult for us to understand how john would say that this word was both with God and was God, or all that God was, the Word that was with God also was being a quality, right? Uh, this meaning, meaning in the Word was deity. He was full deity because all that God was, um, this Word also was. But notice John, the highlight I'm bringing in, and we're going to talk about this later on. Drawing my study to a close right now, John is going to highlight the fact that this word was with God equally as being God he was full deity, but he was with God so now we can go back to Proverbs um, eight thirty and say that this wisdom figure character she was with God she was beside him as a master works as a master workman she was with God and yet if it was just in the mind of God then then we could say it was just God himself verse 31 rejoicing in the world his earth and having my delight in the sons of men verse 30 now therefore sons listen to me for blessed are they who keep my ways listen now to the language that lady wisdom uses it is language again that is reminiscent of God himself God told Israel over and over again in the Old Testament in the five books of Moses particularly say the book of Deuteronomy follow after me and follow after my ways listen to me and be blessed for keeping and following after my ways right so he my instruction and be wise, verse thirty-three, and do not neglect it. This could be God Himself talking, and yet Lady Wisdom is borrowing the very words of God Himself, which we've seen the Angel of the Lord do, speak as very God, which kind of, I, in my opinion, gives us kind of these clues and prepares us to receive Jesus as very God, because the Angel of the Lord, even though He is a representative of God and an agent of God, is also identified as God, not just speaking the words of God, but actually stands in the place of God, like as in a theophany, right? Uh, Lady Wisdom is almost using a theophonic language. Is that a real word? Theophany? Theophonic? Uh, Theophonith. Theophoneth? I'm trying to make up a word. I think it's related to theophany, right? Uh, Verse 34, blessed is the man who listens to me. I mean, these are God's words. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. Jesus himself uses this type of language, right? Um, Verse 35, I mean, notice the exclusivity of our Lord's words when he talks about he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood finds life everlasting and and will never die and um, uh, cannot come into the Father unless he goes through me, right? I'm this exclusive doorway to life everlasting and to the Father and to a relationship and access to the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that exclusive language that Jesus employs is reminiscent of the exclusive language that God His Father employs, but now we have Lady Wisdom using that, those similar uh, that similar language right here for good reason, right? For good reason. For he who finds me finds life. Well, who is the author of life? Jesus himself. Where is life um, given? From God himself. So we notice again, uh, the language that's exclusive to God and to Yeshua. The, The language that's exclusive to deity. Verse 36, but he who sins against me. Wow. Wait a minute. I thought... Ultimately, sin can only be against God, because He's the only one who's ultimately righteous. Yes, we can sin against our fellow man. Humans can sin against other human beings. But notice, ultimately, all righteousness and all forgiveness um, can only proceed from God. I can forgive my brother for sinning against me. I can forgive him for wrongdoings that are committed against me. But as I'm concluding with verse 36 here, Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's God himself who is only righteous, who's altogether righteous, and therefore, even though I can forgive my brother, ultimately, I can't truly forgive and pardon sins because that's uh, uh, um, the, prerog- the prerogative of God alone. And so when Yeshua demonstrated, uh, like for the paralytic, remember he said uh, to the man who was um, paralyzed and uh, laying on the mat, he said, rise, get up, take your mat, walk. And, you know, they lowered him down through the ceiling. In the first century, they laid him down through the, through the ceiling on his mat on his bed because he was paralyzed, and he said, "Arise, get up and walk." And the, the the you know the the interlocutors of Jesus, the the detractors, the the enemies of the Messiah, those doubters and skeptics, they they pointed their finger at Jesus and said, "Aha, you're blaspheming! Because, blaspheming because only God alone can forgive sins, right? You're blaspheming, saying to claiming to forgive this young man's sins." And Jesus looks at the man, paraphrase, and he's like. What's easier for me to tell them, hey, your sins are forgiven or to tell them, get up and take your mat, get up and walk. And it's easier, obviously, um, to just open your mouth and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. And yet he says to them so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins, i.e. that I am the son of man and the son of God and and very God incarnate walking among you. He was demonstrating his deity before them. He said, I'm going to go ahead and do the thing that's even more difficult. He looks at the guy and says, hey, go ahead and um, take your bed. Get up and walk. Now, he might be confusing my example there. Maybe he actually started by telling him to get up and walk, and then later on he tells him, hey, your sins are forgiven. Or he might have said, your sins are forgiven, and then he tells them to get up and walk. Either way, my point is, and if I've got that swapped around, I apologize. You can go back and look up on your own, and fact, check me. But either way, in case I've mistaken that example, the point I'm trying to highlight is that he forgives sins, and he does so in a way that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, recognize that, hey, you're doing something that only God alone is able to pardon because ultimately sin is against God. It's like David said, you alone, Lord, when he committed the sin with Bathsheba, you alone, Lord, have I committed this sin. Right? He recognized that wait a minute, he did actually commit the sin against um, Uriah. He killed Uriah, right? The husband of Bathsheba. So he did commit a sin, not just against Uriah and Uriah's family by taking his life, but he committed against a sin against Bathsheba by taking her husband away from her. But ultimately, David recognized that sin is against god and so i said all that to say in conclusion in verse 36 lady wisdom says but he who sins against me injures himself all those who hate me love death how can we sin against lady wisdom unless lady wisdom is personified as god or with god or identified with god in some very intimate way on the deity level on the on the um as having a divinity as well. So that's going to do it for tonight's beginning of looking at this uh, passage in the book of Proverbs. Eventually we're going to look at, as you can see on my screen, we're going to look at the Hebrew and the Greek from the Septuagint. We've also got eventually a passage, an an article from AnsweringIslam.org, one of my favorite go-to Trinitarian resources, Christian resource. Um, AnsweringIslam.org is an apologetic against um, unbelieving islam right monotheistic islam but it's primarily for trinitarian resources um where muslims argue against the trinity and so there's an article written here by sam shamoon a very famous muslim turned christian apologist right he's a trinitarian apologist and he has a great um, article here about um uh, the, the passage in question in Proverbs. and He's going to show us how that there are different ways to understand this particular passage in for Proverbs. He, he launches from Proverbs 15.32 as well, but he brings in Proverbs 8, which is why I'm going to bring in this particular um, article for us. Uh, he's going to show us some slightly different perspectives from my own, but they're still within the scope of a Trinitarian understanding. And then lastly, and eventually, I've got my own article that I put together um, um, not too long ago, uh, it was uh, earlier this year, I believe. Proverbs eight twenty-two, the eight twenty-three, the wisdom of Proverbs and the Logos of John: a Trinitarian understanding by R. Elben Lyman Hanavi. And we'll talk about Proverbs eight twenty-two and twenty-three, and then when we get there, we'll look at the Hebrew and the Greek and things like that. So, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism let's close in prayer i bless your name and what a privilege lord to be able to study your words with the benefit of having the holy spirit here to explain the words for us indeed it's my understanding that without the help of the rule kodesh the holy spirit studying god's word is merely an intellectual exercise it results in Um, intellectual nutrition to be sure i can become smarter and maybe even more clever and i can gain a a measured amount of knowledge and wisdom from studying your word but without the power of the holy spirit inside of me i can't really properly apply it the way it's supposed to be applied and i can't fully understand it the way it's supposed to be uh, engaged with the way god um wrote it and anticipated that it would be engaged with uh, by his uh, sons and daughters. So thank you, Lord, for this privilege of being able to study your words with your Holy Spirit inside of me. Thank you for the um, challenge and opportunity of sharing these words with the students around the world that join me week after week. Lord, continue to protect us and bless us and raise us up and provide for us. Um, Help us to uh, be uh, solidly rooted in the promises that are found in your word, that are anchored for us. They are anchors for us. Um, Promises that we know are sure and that we can know that we have um, uh, uh, assurance and we can know that we have um, protection and promise and um, um, uh, success in our life. It doesn't mean we're going to make lots of money and things like that, but it means that ultimately at the end of the day, no matter what happens, whether it's wars that come and go, like we are watching in the Middle East right now between Israel and Hamas, whether it's persecution that takes place almost on an everyday basis for uh, those who name the name of christ lord we know that at the end of the day you are going to gather us to yourself you're going to um bring us um uh to a place where we are with you and dwelling with you and that we will ultimately rule and reign with you one day um, so Lord that's the blessed hope that we look forward to so thank you for these times uh, that we live in um, even though they're heating up they're heating up they're getting more and more um, difficult to understand and make sense of with all the, the, the senseless violence and destruction that's around us but thank you Lord for your words that provide that lighthouse that that light that that truth that beacon that we can always turn Turn to um, for our understanding. We'll be careful, Lord, as we continue to study to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.